Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org. Join us now as Pastor Keith Moore shares today's message. So we are in uh, Sunday number two of the seven Sundays of our 40 Days in the Word journey together. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you're here. You know, we, in, in our, Allison and I are hosting a group uh, here on the campus, one of the larger groups for uh, on Wednesday evenings. And we had some people come last week and they were a little bit nervous about it. And I, I just realized they thought they were going to have to answer questions they didn't know. Um, it, you know, you don't have to know the answers before you come. That's why you come. Uh, to We're, we're in, entering into this so that uh, we not only can learn the content of the scriptures, but the one who wrote them and let him change us and meet with us through them. So glad you're here. If you've got your copy of the scriptures, either in hard copy or in digital form on your smartphone or iPad, hold them up. Hold them up. Let me see. Let me see. Good, 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 good. Now, uh, there's a note sheet on the back of your bulletin. I want you to grab that. Usually, typically, when when I'm going to teach in a service, I will do one of two things. I will either take a an issue or a topic and then we will do sort of a Bible survey of all that the Scriptures say about that issue or that topic. It's called. It's kind of a kind of topical exposition of the Scriptures. Or I'll take a passage and we'll walk through that passage and unpack it. Uh, today, because we're in this unique campaign, I'm, I'm going to do something just a little different. Uh, and and here's why: we're we're going to be answering several big big questions as we go through these weeks together. Uh, but let's, let's imagine this. Let's imagine that you're sitting with a, a friend, and after this service that, where we have focused on God's Word, you guys leave and either go get lunch or a cup of coffee and continue the discussion about the possibility of the Bible being God's truth. Uh, that, that the Bible be a unique book. And let's say that your friend said to you something like this. Well, you know, I'm sure that the Bible is a great book. I mean, it obviously, uh, it, it's been a, a great book, a, a holy book. And I'm actually glad that it helps you. But how is it really different from any of the other holy books in the world? Uh, so let's say that your friend says something like this. They go on. It, it bothers me that you Christians sometimes act as if the Bible is the only holy book, the only way that God, um, the only book that God speaks from, like you have a corner on the, the truth. You know, I would like to have your trust in the Bible, but it's hard to get past the fact that people wrote it, just like you and just like, uh, like me. Um, and it's changed so much over the years. Uh, how do we, you know it's changed? There's all these contradictions. Uh, anyway, it's very difficult to understand. So why should I trust the Bible? Well, I think your friend has raised a very good question, a legitimate question, one that deserves a, a little bit of time, more time than we're going to give it today. Uh, there's much more that can be said. In fact, I'm just going to barely touch the surface, but, but here, is the, here is the talk, here is the lesson, here is the sermon in a sentence today. You have darn good reasons to trust the Bible. That's it. 
You have darn good reasons to trust the Bible. And we're only going to mention four of those today. But I want to give you the four. I think we can get four in in about 20 minutes. So you ready? Here we go. You can trust the Bible, first of all, because it is historically accurate. It's historically accurate. Now, on January 2nd or 3rd, probably, what would that be, 1971, I walked into the first day of Psych 101 at what was then West Georgia College before it was a university. Uh, My introductory class in psychology and what was then uh, the first or second humanistic psychology department in the United States, uh, which means it was just whacked out. And uh, by the way, I don't recommend that you studied that. There, if you go there, a lot of great things. I love, I like my college, my university. I'm blessed by it. Don't, don't major in psychology at West Georgia. It's whacked out. I would, no, I don't have time. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it was whacked out. It was crazy. So, so I walked in first day of class, first day of class, first sentence out of the prof's class uh, mouth. So. Why do any of you people believe the Bible? First sentence, first sentence. And and, uh, some guy from uh, northwest Georgia, uh, he he said, no, why would anybody believe that bunch of fairy tales? Well, there are many who think, may not be that cynical or or rude, but think, well, you know, it's, it's myth. There's truth down in there, but it's probably myth. But I would say, That's not true. There is objective historical evidence that the Bible is legitimate. You can trust it. You can trust the message of the Bible because it's historically accurate. Not all history is in the Bible, but where the Bible speaks to history, it is is accurate. Let um, Let me give you some illustrations. There's one of the reasons that we have confidence in the that, that Scripture passes the history test is because of the number of manuscript copies, ancient manuscripts we have of the Hebrew and Greek and the New Testament uh, Scriptures and the short length of time between the original manuscripts and our first copies of the New Testament in particular. Uh, for example... Uh, Dr. Norman Giesler, the the Christian apologist and former president of Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, wrote these words. Let me just read you from his writings. He says, for the New Testament, the evidence is overwhelming, this new uh, evidence of legitimacy. There are 5,366 manuscripts to compare and draw information from, and some of these date from the second or third centuries. To put that in perspective, there are only 643 copies of Homer's Iliad, and that's the most famous book of ancient Greece. No one doubts the existence of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, but we have only 10 copies of it, and the earliest of those copies was made 1,000 years after it was originally written. To have such an abundance of copies of the New Testament that date from within 70 years after their original writing is amazing. It's amazing. And so the sheer manuscript evidence we have uh, gives us confidence in the historical accuracy uh, of the Bible and reasons to trust it. But that's not all. The extreme care 
with which the Hebrew, the Jewish scribes, uh, copied the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, should increase our our confidence. For, for here, here's what they did: the scribes, or, the, or we would call them copyists today, because you know people say, "Well, it's been copied and copied and copied. No doubt, it's been diluted and that kind of thing." Well, here's how they went about it: they followed meticulous rules. Here they are. Number one, each scroll, they wrote in scrolls, must, be, must contain a specified number of columns, all equal throughout the entire book. Number two, the length of each column must not be less than 48 lines or more than 60 lines. Number three, each column's width must be exactly 30 letters. Number four, the copyist must use a specially prepared black ink. Number five, the copyist must not copy from memory. Number six, the space between every consonant must be the size of a thread. They measured. Number seven, the copyist must sit in full Jewish attire. Number eight, the copyist must use a fresh quill, fresh pen to pen the sacred name of God. Use them one time to pen the name of God because these, these scribes held the scriptures and the name of the Lord our God in such reverence that that they would even refuse to acknowledge a king if one walked into their presence while they were writing the name of God. Pretty pretty intense here. Now they added three requirements uh, later on. Number one, they would copy only letter by letter, not word by word. Number two, they counted the number of times... Each letter of the alphabet occurred in each book, and if it came out wrong, they threw the scroll away after all that work. They destroyed it. Uh, They also knew the middle letter of the the first five books of the Old Testament that's called the Pentateuch. They knew the middle letter. Uh, They also knew the middle letter of the entire Old Testament, not just the middle book or the middle chapter or the middle word, but the middle letter of the entire Old Testament. Old Testament. And after copying a scroll, they would count forward the number of letters and they would count backward the number of letters. And if the count didn't come out right, they knew what it was supposed to be. They destroyed the scroll and started over. Would you say, those of you who are psychologists in here, you would probably say, maybe they were, you think they might have been high C personalities, you think? Maybe you think they might read the directions on Christmas Eve. I think they probably did. Very, very meticulous. So we can have confidence in those manuscripts. Uh, Here's uh, some more proof. The, The relatively modern science discipline of archaeology has given... Uh, proof of the historical accuracy of the Bible um, to many, many instances in the Scriptures where people were na- people or places or uh, incidents were recorded in the Scriptures that for many, many, many years, because they were never recorded anywhere except in the Scriptures, there was no historical evidence outside of the Scriptures, uh, scholars and, and, and the guy on the street believed that, well, they didn't really exist. It's just a story. However, when the discipline of archaeology came along, they began to uncover these things. Uh, the greatest archaeological discovery related to our faith so far 
has been the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, they were discovered between 1947 and 1956. And every one of the Old Testament books uh, is found in these scrolls. Now, before their discovery, the earliest manuscripts we had of some of the Old Testament books were from 900 AD, almost a thousand years later uh, than when these scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, were made. Amazingly, the Dead Sea Scrolls were compa- when compared to the latter, the later manuscripts, uh, it was discovered that there were practically no difference at all. Over a thousand years of copying, and no difference. There's about five percent variance. None of those relate to a major doctrine or spiritual truth. Most of that 5% variance is the, gets down to the spelling of a word, a letter here and there. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Uh, for, for years, centuries actually, people considered the Hittite nation in the Scriptures mythological. Uh, they, there was no record uh, in history elsewhere. Uh, and then archaeologists uncovered the capital of the Hittite Empire. I mean, you can go see it today. Uh, the Bible speaks of Solomon, King Solomon in Israel, having chariot, a chariot city and, and having a vast number of chariots and horses, approximately 1,400 chariots, approximately 1,400 horses to pull them, and had, he had a, a city built... To, with all the stables to care for all of the horses and all of the chariots. They thought, that's unreal. Nobody could ever do that. And then they discovered it. They uncovered it. You can go see it today. Uh, portions of Herod's temple have been found. Uh, the theater in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19 that tell us that are, where a riot uh, was um, uh, expressed over the preaching of the gospel when the Apostle Paul was there. It has been uncovered. The pool of Siloam where a man was healed of blindness in John chapter 9. You can go see that. The archaeology time after time after time after time has validated the historical accuracy of the Scriptures. It has never called into question the historical accuracy of the Scriptures. It's amazing. It's astounding. Uh, not only that, but the fact that most of the Bible was written from an eyewitness account gives us reason to trust the historical accuracy of the Scriptures. Uh, now, we all know the value of eyewitnesses. Uh, do, 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 do any of you in here uh, watch at least one legal thriller TV show, you know, where somebody ends up in court every week, do you? About three of you. Anybody watch Law and Order? You ever see that? They're always looking for an eyewitness, right? Right? Why? Because if the prosecution can find an eyewitness to what they saw and heard, uh, it, it lends great weight to their argument to win the case. Well, one piece of evidence that historians look for in assessing the reliability of any ancient document is the number of generations that passed on a story before it was written down. Does that make sense? 
How many generations did this remain in oral tradition before it was written down? How many? How many? Well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing to check. In other words, is this first-hand information or is this secondary information? First-hand or second-hand? Is this a primary source or a secondary source? Well, the events in the Bible were not all of them, but many of them, most of them were primarily recorded in the generation in which they occurred. Within the generation in which they occurred and experienced. For example, Moses was there when God split the Red Sea. And he wrote about it. He wrote it down. Uh, Joshua saw the eyes, with his own eyes, the walls of Jericho tumble. And he wrote about it. Uh, The disciples stood together in the upper room and talked to and touched the resurrected Lord Jesus And then they wrote it about it, and it made it all the way into the Bible. Eyewitness accounts. You and I can trust the Bible, first of all, because it's historically accurate. Remember, not all history is in the Bible, but where the Bible speaks to history, it is accurate. You can trust it. That's the first reason. Here's a second one. Write this down. You can also trust the Bible because it is thematically unified. Thematically unified. Now, Josh McDowell, author, speaker, and Christian apologist, wrote these words about the unified theme of the Bible and and how miraculous it is. Here's what he says. The Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years in various places, stretching all the way from Babylon to Rome. Human authors included over 40 persons from various stations of life, kings, peasants, poets, herdsmen, fishermen, scientists, farmers, priests, pastors, tent makers, and governors. It was written in a wilderness, a dungeon, inside palaces and prisons, on lonely islands, and in the midst of military battles. Yet... It speaks with agreement and reliability on hundreds of controversial subjects. It tells one story from beginning to end, God's salvation of man through Jesus Christ. No one person could have possibly conceived of or written such a work. Written over 1,500 years by over 40 authors, and yet it is unified in its theme. You can trust it. It's unified in its theme. It is historically accurate. Here's a third one. It's life-transforming. It is life-transforming. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, we find these words of Jesus. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It speaks of change. It speaks of transformation. It speaks of, of, uh, of God's active work in the hearts and lives of people to, to make them different and better and new. The Bible's life-transforming. The Bible's certainly the world's best-selling book. The Bible is the first major book to be printed on a press, been translated in whole or in part in over 1,300 languages and dialects. Yet one of the most powerful arguments... For the trustworthiness of the scriptures are the billions of lives that have been transformed by God as they met Jesus Christ through the word over the last 2,000 years. 
And they've written about our, our, our brothers and sisters from the first century and the second century and the third century and the fourth and fifth and sixth, all the way down. We have writings of men and women, some of them everyday people, some of them some of the greatest minds uh, that we know of who still have affected the way we live today. Great scientists, great philosophers, uh, great adventurers, rulers who testify to the life-transforming power of the gospel as they met Jesus Christ through the scriptures, changed lives. And you're, many of you are some of them. You've just not written down your story yet. The, the, the overwhelming evidence of changed lives. Now, we've been talking about archaeology and history and uh, manuscript evidence. We, we've been talking about scientific or objective proof, and we have that. When we talk about changed lives, we're speaking of subjective proof. This happened to me. Subjective. We we call it in our tradition personal testimony. Testifying to what we have seen and heard and what God has done in our lives. Now, some of you might say, but I hear people from other faith traditions, other world religions, say that their lives have been transformed by, well, for example... Uh, Many of us have Muslim friends who give personal testimony that their lives have been transformed by the writings in the Quran. Many of us have Mormon friends who testify that their lives have been transformed by uh, the writings in the Book of Mormon and and two other um, of their their books in addition to the Scriptures. So what about that? Subjective. It's personal testimony. We don't rely on personal testimony alone. Here's what I would say. The Quran and and the Book of Mormon were both written by a single author, quite different from the Scriptures at a point in time. And we have no archaeological evidence for the historicity of those writings. In the Scriptures, you have billions of people whose lives have been changed by by the Bible, by the Scriptures an overwhelming historical objective proof. It's a powerful combination. Life transforming. I got to tell you, we're only, this is day eight of 40 days in the Word here in our church. And I have, I have already been touched deeply by those of you who have been emailing me and calling me and speaking to me in person about how. God the Holy Spirit, our Lord, the Spirit of Christ has been changing you as you have met Him in the Scriptures. Many of you, the way you think has already been changed. For many of you, you've spoken to me about the way you feel. Uh, your, uh, your feelings have been changed. For many of you, you've described that your behavior has changed and your values have changed. For many of you, you've told me that you've repented of sin. That's been pretty powerful. People have called me up and first words out of their mouth is, Pastor, I've been in the Word and I have repented of my sin to God and I wanted to tell you about it. Well, keep it up. The power of God through His Word is working in us right now. You can trust the Bible because it's life-transforming, it's thematically unified, it's historically accurate, but you can also trust it because Jesus trusted it. Jot that down, number four. Jesus trusted 
in the Scriptures, trusted by Jesus Christ. Now, in the last decade, I've heard there's been a movement called Read the Red. You ever heard that, any of you? Just read the red. Now, what they're talking about is in many translations of the Scriptures, when you get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find that the, the words of Jesus are printed in your Bible in red. Anybody got one of those? You see that? And, and there are those who will say, you know, I don't pay much attention to the rest of the Bible. Just read the red. I just, read, I just trust Jesus. Just, just trust what Jesus said. You can trust what Jesus said, but I don't know if you can trust the rest of the Bible. Well, there's a problem with that. When you start reading what Jesus said in the red about the rest of the Scriptures, he wouldn't say and did not say, just read the red. He trusted it all. I mean, listen to this. In, in Jesus recognized that the Holy Spirit was the author of the Scriptures. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 43 and 44, he said to them, How is it then that David, speaking of King David, writing in the Psalms, that David, speaking by the Spirit, he didn't say David is the author. He said the Spirit of God is the ultimate author. Calls him Lord. For he says, and he quotes a passage from the Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus recognized the Holy Spirit as the author of Scripture. Uh, Jesus quoted the Bible as authoritative in Matthew 22, verse 29. Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Uh, Jesus proclaimed the Bible's uniqueness. In Matthew 5, 18, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He says the Bible is unique. In John chapter 10, verse 35, uh, Jesus said, the scriptures are always true. In, uh, in, in Mark 7, uh, verse 13, Jesus called the Bible the word of God. He says, thus you nullify the word of God. God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Jesus believed that the places in the Bible were real. He believed that the prophets in the Bible were real. He believed that Noah was a real person, that Adam and Eve were real persons, that Sodom and Gomorrah were real places, and that Jonah was a real person. So if you read the red, you better be reading the rest of it. Because Jesus trusted it. Jesus says so. And I'm going with Jesus. When in doubt, go with him. You know, the best advice ever given to anyone on the planet was given by Mary, the mother of Jesus in John chapter 4 at the wedding in Cana of Galilee when the servants ran out of wine. Here's what she said. There's my son, Jesus. Whatever he says, do it. That's the best advice ever given. That's Jesus. Whatever he says, do it. He trusted the scriptures. Pastor John MacArthur from California said these words, The Bible is the only completely trustworthy source of knowledge about God. Man can't learn all he needs to know about God from human reason, philosophy, or even experience. God alone is the source of the knowledge about himself, and he has chosen to reveal himself in the Bible and in no other book. And since 
the objective, historical, thematic evidence and the subjective, life-transforming evidence in the words of Jesus himself prove the trustworthiness of the Bible? Since Jesus himself declared the trustworthiness of the Bible, here's our question, so what should we do with it? Well, it depends on where you are on the spiritual continuum. For some of you here, you're, you are unbelievers. Our church exists for unbelievers to check out the claims of Christ. You've never become a Christian. You've never placed your faith in Jesus. Well, since the Bible is true and authoritative, then what it says about you and me is true and authoritative. So what does it say? Well, among other things, it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that we are all, every one of us, sinful people in need of a Savior, separated from God by our sin, at odds with God, and we're in danger of having to atone for our own sin forever in a place called hell unless something or someone intervenes. It says that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that He's the one who made a way, that God loved us even while we were sinners so much, uh, loved the world so much that He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus, so that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And the Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 10 that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, calls out to Jesus and admits, I'm one of those sinful people. I'm one of those people separated from God. I can't earn my way back to God. I can't get rid of this sin problem. Help calls on the name of the Lord. Whoever, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be forgiven, shall be cleansed, shall be adopted as a child of God, shall be given God's Holy Spirit, shall, shall be given God's gift of eternal and abundant life, that He will cast our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west, and will remember them no more, cast them in the depths of the sea, and will remember them no more. That's what the Bible says about you and me. And so if, if you've never done anything about that, I want to give you the opportunity to call on the name of the Lord. So let's pray. Pray with me. If you've never committed your life to Christ, now's a good time. And I'm going to walk you through a prayer now, these are not magic words. God's more concerned with the attitude of your heart than He is the words of your mouth. But make this the cry of your heart. You ready? Pray this from your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, thank You for making me and loving me. Even though I've ignored You and gone my own way, I realize I need you and I am sorry for my sins. I turn from them. I ask you to come into my heart and life and forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me and paying the penalty for my sin. Please come into my life now and make me your child. Give me a new and living relationship with God the Father. 
make me a new person inside. As much as I know how, I want to follow you from now on. And I accept your gift of salvation. Now, please help me grow by faith. Now, if you just prayed that prayer, if you just made that commitment, if you just placed your active trust in Jesus for the very first time, uh, I'd, I'd like to know it just so I can pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I would like to know it. Just raise your hand up real high until I see it. Anybody over here? On the, in the, I just, for the first time, trusted in Christ. I prayed that prayer. I committed my life to Christ. Anybody here? Anybody here on the floor? How about in the balcony? Anybody up there? Okay. Yes. Yay, yay, yay. Congratulations. Wonderful. Who else? You know, people do this every week here. It's miraculous. It's wonderful. And I thank God and congratulate you and welcome you to the family of God. This is great. This is great. Now, now for the rest of you, why don't we take a moment? We've, we've got 18 minutes left in this service. It's not time to leave. So stick with us. Why don't you spend a few minutes now? You're already a believer. And ask God, because of what you've heard, to increase your trust in the scriptures. Just ask him quietly for a couple of minutes where you are in prayer. categories and 
and you need prayer. You say, I need prayer for a person or people, or I need prayer for an issue or issues that I'm concerned about. Uh, would you just stand up and remain standing? We're going to pray for you. Just stand right where you are. There you go. these people who are standing around you, but uh, that's okay. Would, but would those of you who are near them, would you just gather around them, maybe just put a hand on their shoulder, one of you? Yeah, just, you can, everybody can look. Just gather around people who are standing. Let's go. Don't look, let them be alone. Just, just maybe put a hand on their shoulder. This is just nothing weird or mystical or magical. It's just always been representative of asking for God's hand on our life. We see it down through church history. So I'm going to lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we pray to you because we believe you hear us when we pray. And you do some things when we pray that you don't do when we don't pray. So we come to you now. I, as As their pastor, I come to you on behalf of all of these men, all of these women, all of these students, all of these kids who are standing with physical needs, with emotional needs, with relational challenges, challenges on the job, financial, health, spiritual, many of them concerned for their parents or their spouse or their kids or their friends neighbors or co-workers. So we lift all these up to you. Lord, many of them greatly burdened. I pray that your promise in Psalm 34, 18 be a reality for them where you said, I will be near to those who are brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. Do that for them, Lord. And I pray that your promise in Isaiah 41, 10, uh, 34, 18 and Isaiah 41, 10 be a reality for them where you said, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do that for them. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in their life circumstances and that you would either change them from the be- for the better or that you would sustain them by the power of your Spirit and by your grace in the midst of these difficulties, whichever you believe and know is best for them. And we give you thanks for these things. Open their eyes this week that they may recognize your activity in their lives in response to these prayers, that their trust not only in your word but in you would increase. And Lord, we thank you that you increase our faith by your word. That faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. Lord, give us faith. Increase our trust. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for listening to this week's message. For more information about Dogwood Church, visit www.dogwoodchurch.org.